Our second scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 22. I'll be reading verses 1 through 14 in Matthew chapter 22. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so I don't take vacations or time off in order to collect sermon illustrations. No, no. But, you know, when you've been preaching for a while, it's, it's just ingrained into you that Everything can become a sermon illustration. Martha's going, oh no. <laughs> As most of you know, Martha and I took some time away last weekend. And I appreciate those who, who pitched in and did things uh, in our absence. And uh, we started by attending the funeral of James Reed's mother in Columbus last Friday morning. From there, we drove to Hattiesburg and attended the CBF of Mississippi Fall Assembly. We had plans to go to central Alabama and on to north Georgia from there, but it so happens that Hurricane Nate had the exact same itinerary. So we decided to go west and outrun the rain, which we did. We spent one night in Natchez. I was calling it Natchez but I was told, you don't pronounce it Natchez, it's Natchez. So we spent one night in Natchez, one night in Vicksburg with time on the Natchez Trace in between, and we ended up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I don't know why, but we just ended up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas before taking back roads home Tuesday afternoon. While in Hattiesburg, I mentioned our plans to some good friends, and one of them mentioned that they had made the same type of trip. So I asked if there were any can't miss things to do along the way. And my friend told me they had stopped at Windsor Ruins at some point, and that was a good thing to do. One of the highlights of their trip. Anybody ever been to the Windsor Ruins? I can understand why. <laughs> <laughs> On our journey, we made sure to seek out the Windsor Ruins. Well, I looked it up. Get a little information about it. The ruins consist of several standing Corinthian columns from the largest antebellum Greek revival mansion ever built in the state of Mississippi. 
it sounds impressive. The mansion stood from 1861 to 1890 when it was destroyed by fire. That should give you a hint. But the ruins remain, hence the name Windsor Ruins. It has been designated a Mississippi landmark. It is on the National Register of Historic Places. And so we drove, and we drove, and we drove. And my anticipation and eagerness increased with each passing mile. We finally got there, and there it was. I counted around eight columns surrounded by a chain-link fence. And that was it. I suppose I was anticipating enough of the ruins being left to be able to see portions of this mansion and even be able to walk among the ruins. In my mind, I guess I was thinking that even though a fire destroyed it, maybe there would be enough left to explore. That was not the case. The fire did a pretty thorough job. We stopped. We got out of the car. We were the only people there. We gazed at the columns. We gazed at each other. And we got back into the car. I must say, with all due respect to my very good friend and the National Register of Historic Places, I was rather disappointed. There was nothing to do. There was no place to even walk around. No participation whatsoever. Now, if that's your thing, I'm not knocking it. It just wasn't for me. Well, I contrast that experience with the place we visited in Vicksburg. The Coca-Cola Museum. Now we're talking. Anybody ever been to the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured that Amy might have. It was in Vicksburg, Mississippi, where Coca-Cola was first bottled. Up until then, it had only been a fountain drink. And so we paid a nominal fee, went through the museum, took me back on memory lane as we saw Coke machines and packaging that I remember from childhood. I remember going with my mother to the grocery store and, and getting these one-quart Coke bottles and everything. It just this took me back to my childhood. All the slogans and the advertisement, it was a great place. And then the tour ended back at the front of the museum where you could purchase a cold bottled Coca-Cola and it was 90 degrees outside. We bought one and the lady opened it with a bottle opener. No twisting here, it's a bottle opener. As I took a swallow, I turned to the folks from Switzerland behind us and I said, there's nothing like a cold bottled, glass bottled Coca-Cola. Great experience. And so, so for me, we're talking about a tale of two experiences. One that invited active participation and one that essentially shunned it. 
I think it would be safe to say that the king in the parable from our scripture in Matthew wanted folks to experience meaningful participation. We see this parable in Luke as well as in Matthew. It is likely that we most often hear it preached from Luke. For in Luke's version, the master invited the guests to the great banquet. They all had excuses as to why they couldn't make it, and so the master told the slave, go ahead, invite anyone and everyone. Go out in the streets and bring them all in. Come one, come all. What a nice story illustrating that everyone is welcomed into the kingdom of God. I guess we could call that the G-rated parable of the great banquet. In Matthew, I do believe we would need to put a disclaimer warning of mature things. I mean, come on. The slaves who invited the folks to the wedding banquet were seized and tortured and killed. So the king sends troops out to kill the murderers and then burn the city. Then he reissued the invitation and noticed one of the attendees was not wearing a wedding robe and proceeded to have him bound and thrown into outer darkness. Ouch. Good grief. Sounds like must-see TV, doesn't it? What in the world are we to make of Matthew's version of this parable? First, let us be reminded that it is indeed a parable. It is meant to illustrate a larger point, sometimes in a very dramatic manner. And so before even looking at what that point might be, let's make sure we are not taking this passage literally. I mean, think about the absurdity of the king inviting those to a wedding. The king! inviting those to a wedding, and no one, not one person comes. It's the king and his son, for goodness sakes. Really? Not likely. The second invitation goes out. Not only do they not come, but they murder the messengers. They murder the messengers of the king. Not very likely. Then, while the wedding banquet sits on the table, the prime rib is getting cold, the king sends out the army and burns the entire city to the ground, but he still has time to send out another invitation. Come on. No, not very likely. Then somebody shows up, <laughs> but doesn't have the proper attire, and is bound and thrown into outer darkness. I mean, in all of this, punishment doled out doesn't match the crime in any of it. It's absurd. It's implausible. It's exaggerated. And so we need to be very careful about reading into this story the violent judgment of God. That he's just waiting to throw us all into outer darkness. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take the parable seriously either. I would like for us to ponder a couple of truths that seem to emanate from this story. First, God in fact does invite all to the feast. We see this in both parables and, in, as a matter of fact, in all of Scripture. God wants everyone to be part of his kingdom. We really could stop right there and ponder this for a while because, you see, 
Every time you or I look with disdain upon someone else for whatever reason, when we even have a whisper of a thought that someone might not be welcomed in this place, much less in God's kingdom, these two parables along with the entirety of Scripture, quite frankly, should hit us right between the eyes. All are welcomed to the feast that is called the kingdom of God. But I don't want to stop there. That one is kind of obvious to us, or should be. Instead, I want to move forward to talk about the ill-dressed party attender, for goodness sakes. It just seems odd that you beg for people and take anybody in, and then you throw somebody out because they're not dressed the right way. All are welcome, come one and all, but make sure you're wearing the proper attire. I mean, we don't have a dress code here. We're not going to throw somebody out because of how they're dressed. Although, in my home church growing up, I dare say that if someone was dressed poorly enough, they probably would have been removed from First Baptist Church, Bamanette, Alabama. If not removed, you certainly would have known they were not one of us, okay? And probably a whole lot of other Baptist churches back in the day, hopefully not today. But I think what we're talking about here goes beyond a simple dress code. From what I've read, most folks during this day will not have had much more than a set of work clothes and a set of party clothes, if you will, festival clothes, or the wedding robe that is mentioned. If you were summoned to a feast or festival, you would get out of your work clothes, put on your feasting clothes, okay? Not a hard choice, really, and not many choices. And in so doing, you were signifying that you were going to be participating that you were going to be an active part of the gathering, that you were going to be showing your respect to the host. And so when the guest arrived in work clothes, he was essentially snubbing the host. I'm here, but I really don't want to be here. Don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to participate in the festive activities. I'll just hold up this wall over here, eat your food, and stay to myself. Not going to happen. What was desired was active, meaningful participation. And the same might be said of us when it comes to God's kingdom. Everyone is invited, but if you're going to come aboard, you need to take the invitation seriously. And taking the invitation seriously involves meaningful participation. Being part of God's kingdom is not a spectator sport. We are called to participate. We are called to be involved. We are called to be active. These two ladies that are with us today, driving from Kentucky on their way to Shaw, Mississippi, working with the Rural Poverty Initiative, these are the kinds of things that we see ourselves doing in God's kingdom, we are actively participating in his kingdom. And in the process, 
we are called to enjoy the experience that the host has prepared for us. The invitation might say, come as you are, but it would go on to say, don't stay that way. Bring a change of clothes. Bring your festival clothes with you. N.T. Wright, who I quote quite often, wrote, Jesus' love reached those that were invited to the feast where they were, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants the best for the beloved. Their lives were transformed, healed, and changed. Actually, nobody really believes that God wants everyone to stay exactly as they are. God loves serial killers and child molesters. God loves ruthless and arrogant businessmen. God loves manipulative mothers that damage their children's emotions for life. But the point of God's love is that he wants them to change. He hates what they're doing and the effects it has on everyone else and on themselves too. Ultimately, if he's a good God, he cannot allow that sort of behavior and that sort of person if they don't change to remain forever in the party he's throwing for his son. He concludes by writing, the point of the story is that Jesus is telling the truth, the truth that political and religious leaders often like to hide, the truth that God's kingdom is a kingdom in which love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness reign unhindered. They are the clothes you need to wear for the wedding. And if you refuse to put them on, you're saying that you don't want to stay at the party. That is the reality. If we don't have the courage to say so, we're deceiving ourselves, he writes, and everyone who listens to us. Wearing the clothes of love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness, it just does not seem possible to be wearing those clothes without engaging in meaningful participation in God's kingdom, without being changed. Or as Paul puts it in our reading from Philippians, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. In some ways, it boils down to a simple question that we've asked ourselves before. Can you look back? Can I look back at a point in our Christian journeys and be able to say, I'm different today than I was then. Are we able to say that we have found and we continue to find meaning in our participation in God's kingdom? Do we clothe ourselves properly for this feast in which we are participating? If on the chance we say no, well, there's good news. 
God is always waiting with that wedding robe that fits just right. Even custom made for you and for me. Meaningful participation in the kingdom of God. It's not only available, it's abundant. We just need to make sure we're wearing the right clothes. Let's pray.